Hello and welcome to More Than Politics, a podcast for those of us who want something more than what we've come to expect from politics and from our political discourse. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. On today's episode, I'll be talking with my friend, Dr. J. Kristen Urban, who is Professor Emerita of Mount St. Mary's University in Emmitsburg, Maryland, where she taught in the political science department for more than 25 years. Dr. Urban taught a variety of courses related to international, Middle East, and African politics, as well as courses on conflict, peace, security, justice, and human rights. She served as director of the university's international studies major and director of its global studies program. She also spearheaded a new major introduced in 2018, Conflict, Peace, and Social Justice. Dr. Urban undertook her doctoral fieldwork in Israel-Palestine, where she examined the policy and decision-making processes of the mid-level Palestinian leadership that directed the first two years of the 1987 Palestinian Intifada. Since then, she has spent time in Russia, Romania, Italy, Turkey, Oman, and Saudi Arabia, and was a 2003-04 Senior Fulbright Scholar to Bahrain. Her research has moved more broadly into conflict analysis and peacebuilding. She is currently working on a book on peace and justice in the Abrahamic traditions. Dr. Urban and I will be discussing the current state of the U.S. on the world stage, and we'll be reviewing the international developments that, since the end of the Second World War, have set that stage. Our conversation was recorded on July 24th. I will be breaking it into two parts. This episode will cover the period immediately following World War II through the second Bush administration. The rest of our conversation will follow in next week's episode. All right. Well, Kristen, thank you for being here. I really appreciate it. I'm delighted to be involved in this kind of a podcast. I think that's pretty cool. So happy to be here. Thank you for asking me. (laughs) Great. Well, as I've told you, I was hoping to get you here to give us sort of a basic understanding about where the United States lies in relation to the rest of the world um, when it comes to um, the past, I don't know, 75 years or so. So we're going to be looking at from World War II forward and sort of looking at what uh, international relations has been in this time period to bring us to today to understand where we are, and to give us an idea of what might be coming next. So first of all, could you tell us, give us an overview of uh, where where the world was at the end of the Second World War and how that has contributed to the international world we know today? Okay. Um, Well, I I think that after World War II, the U.S. was essentially the only country standing um, in, you know, certainly in the, in the democratic uh, world. And um, because France and Britain, you know, had suffered so much during, uh, during the war. Um, and, and so the U.S., even before World War II ended, uh, was trying to chart a course of new beginnings um, so that we, we would be living in a more cooperative environment um, where uh, countries recognized their interdependence, uh, where they could come and talk about differences 
and uh, instead of winding up on the battlefield, as you know had been the case for like a hundred years before, okay, the past hundred years. So the U.S. Uh, was the main architect. We did it certainly with our European allies, um, but in terms of the United Nations and all of the, its uh, various institutions, the World Health Organization. Uh, UNICEF, you know, children, helping children develop, uh, UNESCO, education being important, uh, the UNDP, uh, development, development of the, what we then called the third world. Um, so, uh, you know, it, it, this was, you know, who we were and we were trying to put in place, you know, a, a world that um, was going to suit us, but also reflect our values. Right. And so all of this set up, this is a direct reaction to the world having just come out of two world wars. Exactly. Exactly. And even something like the Marshall Plan, uh, which and and we had a similar one for Japan, but the Marshall Plan for Europe um, was a, a completely you know, unprecedented thing. Uh, normally, you know, the victors take the spoils. And uh, we saw that in World War One. We'd seen that in a number of other wars. But for the victors to be actually helping rebuild their former foes, um, you know, that was, you know, it was, it was unheard of. Now, this wasn't an altruistic uh, policy or a set of policies. Uh, it was U.S. contractors and uh, a technology that benefited from this, um, but it did put in place then allies later that we could actually trade with, you know, that right. we could be partners with. Right. And the, the Marshall Plan, just for those who don't know, was the effort that the United States undertook after the Second World War to rebuild Europe, right? Right, right. And there was a similar kind of plan in Japan as well. Uh, we wanted a j- democratic Japan that would never rearm itself. And, uh, and you know, Japan has, you know, that has paid off. <laughs> uh, both, both the European, uh, the European uh, world and the European Union and uh, the Japanese, you know, the, those investments have, have been, uh, have returned, the, have, have been a big turn on reinvestment, on, right. on our investment. Yeah, it it's way. interesting. So there was a real recognition that if we wanted to be in a world where we had partners that we could sort of see on the same <laughs> same level with, then we needed to have societies and economies that were able to function in a healthy way and, um, yeah, and trade, trade with us particularly. Right. Right. Uh, And not, not be digging their way out of poverty. (laughs) Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. And, um, what is the, well, I can't think of the word right now. So if it comes back, I'll, I'll bring okay. it up. Um, after, uh, within just a few years, of course, Stalin begins the expansionism of the Soviet Union. Um, it had been our ally during World War II, but uh, immediately starts kind of grabbing up all of Eastern Europe. And we find ourselves in the Cold War. At that point, that's really when uh, U.S. policies and leadership, we were the leaders of the free world, um, uh, when we really wanted to extend our values, uh, this was really a contest uh, of our way of life uh, against the, the communist, you know, state-centered 
command economy uh, where the individual had no freedoms. You know, everything was done uh, for the good of the state. Um, and so the U.S. values then in our foreign policy uh, were the values of democracy, um, the social contract, basically, where citizens are sovereign. Um, we have contested elections, uh, those kinds of things. And then liberalism, uh, the Bill of Rights, you know, the freedom, the liberty of the individual, but also our economic liberalism, the idea of um of uh, the laissez-faire economy, the, the hands-off mm -hmm. government, uh, which allows uh, economic success for the individual. So those were prime, you know, principal values that, that we were basically extending through our policies. Um, also, maybe the idea of security and stability, that was always important. Progress through science and scientific discovery. Uh, and after World War II, particularly the idea of human rights uh, became really important. Um, the Holocaust, you know, was just something which mm -hmm. horrified everybody. Uh, the Nuremberg trials, you know, the idea that we're going to have a world that operates with certain values and laws, you know, that mm -hmm. we are responsible. Our leaders are responsible. So, Right. Yeah, it's interesting for me to think back to the Cold War, because I was a child in the 1980s and early 90s. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it was at the tail end of it. And I definitely remember like living in a world that was bipolar, you know, where you, yeah, the, you know, it was us or them sort of a situation. Mm -hmm. So I definitely remember that. But I also remember being in high school and seeing signs in our high school for like a nuclear shelter in the basement right, <laughs> just, right, just right. thinking that was laughable right. and absurd, yeah. you know, like, yeah. Oh, what a different time. And this was only a few years after the yeah. cold war. Yeah. So it, you know, I, I remember it being bipolar, but I don't really remember the fear of yeah. living during a nuclear arms race. So I wonder if you could just sort of describe the, um, you know, the I, sort of I think fear that best, drove it. Yeah. I think the best, well, there were, there were, oh, of course we had MacArthur, the whole MacArthur thing, M right. McCarthy, McCarthy, yeah. I'm sorry. Yeah. <laughs> uh, in the fifties. Yeah. So it was a sort of commie witch hunts, you know, uh, this fear of that, that, well, there were slogans, you know, I'd rather be dead than red, you know, red meaning wow, yeah. Soviet, you know, um, you're pink, you're a pinko, you know, you, if, if you were interested at all. And, and there was an interest, I think, with college students and stuff in um, joining, you know, commie, I, I know of people who did this, you know, communist party, uh, just to basically find out what it was about, you know, mm -hmm. um, and, uh, or anybody, uh, one of, one of the big challenges when we went into the Vietnam War was that because of the McCarthy era, you had no, uh, you had very limited academic research on East Asia, um, because if you were doing any res research into China mm. or anything like that, then automatically they assumed you were a pinko and oh, uh, you would be blacklisted. You know, you would be fired from your positions. So we went into the Vietnam War without really having any boots on the ground. You know, we really mm. knew very little. Uh, about uh, what was happening uh, on the ground there, um, so yeah, it was a fear. It was a fear-driven time. Um, I remember in the 
fifties, I was a, a little kid then, um, hiding under, you had to go under your desks, you know, mm-hmm. <laughs> for yeah. drills, uh, or, or being in the hallway, uh, we'd all have our coats over our heads, you know, I, I'm not sure wow. how that would have protected us, but, right. um, the, uh, Cuban Missile Crisis in 1962 under, under Kennedy, uh, really chart was charged. Uh, the atmosphere was charged from that. And we only know now how close we came to, um, to an actual uh, attack you know, after, after we've been able to look at the KGB files and things like that. If you've yeah. seen the movie 13 days, I, you um, know, I haven't somehow I missed that one. I mean, obviously uh, I've heard of it, but you, I just never watched see the, it. Yeah. yeah. The, the discourse and the not knowing and imagining and, you mm-hmm. know, the bureaucracies that are trying to do standard operating procedures for things, you know? Um, and yeah, then you have I, Kennedy and Khrushchev actually trying to, you know, hold on to it. So it didn't, you know, it didn't blow up in everybody's face, but yeah, yeah I have heard fear driven time. Yeah. I have heard podcasts um, before about sort of mistakes that could have been disasters, you know, things that yeah. weren't even intentional, but <laughs> they yeah. could have resulted in, oh, it's scary. Yeah. And I do remember thinking, I mean, I guess I was aware enough of the situation to think of this I have always lived in Maryland, and so we're not super mm-hmm. far from Washington, D.C. Right, right. And I remember always thinking, well, if they ever bomb D.C., we're gone. Right. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Sort yeah, of yeah. fatalistic about it. That little it. spray. <laughs> yeah, I mean. Well, and where you went to college, Mount St. Mary's, that was right. just five miles from Camp David. So. Right, exactly. <laughs> oh, a target. Yeah. Um, so I guess I've always had a bit of fatalism, like, oh, we're close enough to the Capitol that if anybody strikes them, we're doomed. It's not, we're gone. <laughs> it's not worth It's not worth worrying about it because we wouldn't have a chance. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Oh, goodness. Yeah, yeah. It is kind yeah. of funny to think of now, though, you know, in it's been far enough it's far enough away now. I think yeah. that probably people who are just a few years younger than me, uh-huh. who don't remember the Cold War at all, probably right. don't think about that as much. Yeah. I think, well, and what what is weird is that um, when you get something, policies coming forward like healthcare um, or something like that, then you get particularly the older uh, citizens and representatives and stuff immediately calling it communism or social, right, you know, right. and it comes from this, this deep seated fear, you know, from the fifties and sixties principally, oh, yeah. um, you know, about anything that was going to be uh, connected with government and and the community you know had to be directed from the center and it was going to be you know soviet style communism right yeah um, that's interesting yeah that's like it's underlying the older generations but it's just totally absent for the younger that association so you get a lot of younger people supporting bernie (laughs) you know right right socialist you know and for them right. it's not an issue you know uh, right. but they don't for carry that baggage uh, you know it's like oh right. my god you know that we know what stalin did you know uh, right. so it's uh and european democracies a number of them are not liberal democracies like ours they are democratic socialist forms of government right so the state actually does control some of the main uh factories or the main like the electricity or the gas or, you know, particular right, the things utilities. That, yeah, exactly. Right. Uh, and and uh, provide grants and, you know, right. 
subsidies the, the for them. train systems and those things exactly yeah yeah uh, japan the same way so yeah right all right well moving on from that time period can you take us into the period immediately following the cold war okay um well when uh gorbachev uh of course the the when the wall comes down <laughs> which is in uh, 1990 um, the wall, I'm sorry, the, the wall in Berlin, okay. Right. Uh, right. that, that the Soviets had put in place because, uh, Germany was divided up into East and West Germany, uh, because the Soviet Union, all of the allies got a piece of the pie. Okay. Uh, as after world war two, right. It was divided um, what essentially into four, wasn't it? So France, the UK. Yeah. And we all were the West basically. Right. And we grouped together for the West Germany. Right. Right. And then, um, East Germany was, you know, overseen by the Soviet union. And then Berlin having been the capital, uh, of of Nazi Germany, okay, uh, was divided also, and right. um, the the Soviets put a wall up almost overnight. Uh, there was a, a movie recently about that too with Tom Hanks. I can't remember the hmm. or something about the bridge or something. But anyway, he was caught. He was sent over to negotiate, and uh, and they were caught behind as they were building the wall. You know, it, it huh. came up almost overnight. And so people, unless they could get out quickly and did, uh, they were they were basically stuck in, in what became East Germany. Um, okay. And so anyway, that wall eventually comes down in uh, 1990. And uh, Gorbachev, the Soviet um, sec- general secretary at that time, uh, had already begun changing communism. And he had introduced policies called perestroika and um, perestroika. Which were what, glass, like glass economic? Nost. Well, they, um, glasnost economic? was okay. openness, so it was more okay. political. People could actually write into the editors about any issues that bothered them. I have a whole collection of those. Uh, there were huh. some very funny ones uh, making fun <laughs> of their government. And, and then there were, you know, cries for help, you know. Um, and then perestroika was supposed to be restructuring. So, uh, perestroika has to do with stones All and right. structures. And so it was going to be restructuring uh, communism to make it, to bring it into a kind of democratic socialism was, I think, going in his mind he still wanted the communist party but was going to make it a kinder gentler you know i think that was the the idea anyway that it was mm-hmm. it was going to persist um but it was going to be open to economic uh free free markets and, and things like that mm-hmm. um unfortunately the glasnost came first and once you had the openness then you got people in the streets and you got uh, kind of rabble rousing. Uh, China was watching this and said, "Nope, we're not doing it that way." Uh, in the eighties, China started opening little economic zones and sending students over. I, I had a Chinese uh, national students in a couple of my classes in my doctoral work, hmm. um, and they were learning about the economic system 
you know, and, and the political system, but mostly the economics, and, uh, and then going to be going back and working in these economic zones that communist China was supporting, because communist China had seen what happened when Russia opened the floodgates for free speech with its mm-hmm. glasnost policy. Hmm. And, uh, and, and Russia basically crumbled, you know, and they never have kind of put things together yet economically certainly not whereas china you know has maintained its control on the politics but has opened up you know the economics Mm -hmm. so um, so anyway the wall came down and um and then for the next 10 years i think the u.s was really a unipolar uh leader because democracy and liberalism had won and Mm -hmm. communism had clearly lost. Um, And uh, although Cuba hung on and so did North Korea and of Mm -hmm. course China, you know, still, still there. But I do remember this period pretty well. I remember, um, you know, the term, the new world order, you know, there was going to be this new, new way of, of ordering the world. And I remember feeling a little hopeful and a little anxious. Like, yeah. what is this going yeah. to look like? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And the idea was we would take money out and we started closing military bases and everything else. We were going to take money away from the military and using this, um, uh, the peace, the peace dividend is what they called it. Use the mm-hmm. peace dividend to uh, support then economic and social development globally in our mm-hmm. own country but also globally you know we were we were thinking of more broadly um, because Eastern Europe needed a lot of reconstruction um, African countries all of a sudden also began moving towards a democratic uh, in a democratic direction and you saw some of a, a number during the 90s uh, you saw a number of uh, of autocrats basically overridden, and you get democratic systems being put in place uh, throughout that you know that decade. Also, however, you have you know things being shaken up. Uh, I mean, this is like a big deal, you know, mm-hmm. uh, and uh, the collapse of the Soviet Union, and you get Bosnia, you get. Um, Bosnia Herzegovina, you know the mm-hmm. the horrific um, uh, genocides there. You get Rwanda in uh, in Africa under the same kinds of you know things sh- being shaken up a bit. Um, right. And there was much of the world, wasn't there, where during the Cold War we'd had a presence because we didn't want the Soviet Union to have a presence, right? Exactly. Exactly. <laughs> so here we found ourselves in Africa and Asia and different parts of the world. South America, and all of a sudden our foe is gone. So I'm sure there was a bit of like, okay, well, we're here in these places. What are we supposed to do now? (laughs) Who who are we? And interestingly, um, instead of our foreign policy before that, um, always depended on, you know, the Soviets had their clients and the West had its clients, client Mm -hmm. states. And so 
uh, we supported even really bad dictators uh, in Africa and other places as long as they weren't commies. (laughs) And of course, the Soviets supported really bad people too, as long Mm -hmm. as they weren't, you know, uh, espousing democracy. And um, uh, this changes then after the 90s or in the middle of the 90s. And we start requiring uh, countries to their their leadership to be accountable. I remember Kenya was one of these where all of a sudden, you know, they, they had to pass a litmus test, a human rights litmus test, a political democracy litmus mm-hmm. test. They couldn't just have these pretend democratic elections. They had to be genuinely contested and things like that. So, um, so we, you know, we, we embark on a different, you know, it's a different kind of, um, mission, I guess, you know, um, Mm-hmm. And the Rwandan genocide would have been at this time too, because I think that was what ninety four. Right, the Rwanda genocide in nineteen ninety four. Right in April of ninety four. Ninety three was was the was Bosnia uh, the main genocides that the war was going on mm. longer than that. Um, yeah, and the U.S. didn't want to get involved in that, uh, and they actually worked against the United Nations, the U.S. and France. Uh, worked against uh, intervening. What's happening in the Middle East at that period? Because there had also been some some power play between the Soviets and the U.S. in the Middle East too. So right. how did that shake out right. after the Cold War? Well, in the in the nineties, um, or in nineteen ninety, uh, this is ninety one. Uh, that's the the la- the first the only the second time but the last time that uh the US has used the United Nations Security Council and uh gotten everybody on board when Saddam Hussein invaded Kuwait mm-hmm. uh that was that was like 91 and George uh Bush right, uh, 41 the Gulf War. right right uh was uh, he was an internationalist he had you know he was very well educated and had uh spent time uh in his vice presidency you know uh, touring and and uh globally you know been been mm-hmm. diplomat you know in terms of diplomatic he, hadn't he been head of the CIA before he was he vice was president head of the or... CIA he'd right. also done had diplomatic stations uh in Asia uh, and um, I think it was I think it was China or Japan, um, and so uh, he is able to bring together an, an international coalition to go against uh, Saddam right. Hussein. So he uses uses that structure that the U.S. had helped set up after World War exactly. II to deal exactly. with this situation right. with Saddam Hussein in the nineties. Right. And right. then uh, because the infraction was, you know, a country, a member of the United Nations attacking another country aggressively. OK, that mm-hmm. is, uh, you know, that um, breaks, you know, what um, that goes against the United Nations uh, standards. OK, the, the charter um, is in violation of, I think. A paragraph 51 or so. I'm not, ooh, 
I can't remember all of the ones <laughs> in the charter, but um, but anyway, you're I'll not. I'll just take your word at it. <laughs> okay, yeah, you're not supposed to. You're not supposed to uh, attack other people. You right. can defend yourself, but you can't attack. Um, and so immediately, of course, everybody went in and you know and and pushed him back. Um, however, in the case of Palestine, Israel, which is a really much more complicated thing. Um, the 67 war, 1967 war, um, Israel went in and, um, and took over the West Bank in a, in a six day war. They were success, very successful right, right. and they continued to occupy it. And nobody, the United States had never made them get out. And so all of a sudden, the Arab world was really angry. They they didn't like the fact that Saddam Hussein had done this. They didn't like Saddam Hussein. But they also thought this was a very two-faced argument for the U.S. to be making, uh, that, oh, we're oh. doing this to preserve, you know, the right. integrity you interfere of the United when, Nations. Right. Exactly. You interfere when an Arab nation invades, but you didn't interfere when Israel For the invaded. Palestinians when right. Israel did. Gotcha. Right. And so... Uh, President Bush then initiated um, discussions. Uh, his um, Secretary of State was was Baker, mm-hmm. and he went over and uh, met. That was I was actually over there at that time, uh, oh, wow. working on my own fieldwork. Um, but he was meeting with local people, trying to then uh, you know get something for the Palestinians. And this uh, this actually led then ultimately to the um, Oslo Accords, which in 1996 were seen in a very positive and hopeful light. Of course, Mm -hmm. we know by 2000, it was pretty much dead. And by now it's dead, 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 because um, Israel's talking about annexing uh, most of those territories. So, um, but, but that was something going on in the Middle East, you know, at that time. Um, The U.S. also had been based in the 90s, uh, for the Gulf War, uh, we put troops in Saudi Arabia, and the Saudis were not happy about this at all. The the, the local hmm. people having Western Saudi Arabia oh, is right very to like much to distinguish between the government the values, and the local exactly right. the values of of the Soviet. Yeah, the government was you know they um, acceded to U.S. requests or demands right. uh, or arm twisting or whatever. Right. But that doesn't um, mean the locals liked it. Right. No. And that's where Al Qaeda then starts because you get disaffected right. people then that go off and start training, you know, in, in the other camps and stuff. So yeah, a lot of stuff was going on there. There, uh, there was a lot of uh, movement, I guess you, you would say. Uh, right. So af- that's, that's the, the union. right. So that sets the stage for September 11th. That does. That does. And um, all of those things then, uh, I I remember faculty uh, at the Mount going, wait a minute, why the World Trade Center? What, you know, from my point of view, oh, that's perfectly logical. They're going against, you know, uh, the symbol of, you know, Western imperialism, if you want to think of it that way. You know, everything's about the dollar and about making profits. Mm -hmm. Our only Mm -hmm. interest was oil, you know, really in the Middle East. Um, although we would say it was other things. I mean, oil was a really big deal. Um, but the fact that these guys, you know, attacked on American soil, uh, 
the rest of the world, even the Arab world, you know, was totally behind the U.S. going into Afghanistan. I mean, you mm-hmm. you have a right to, you know, once you find out who did it, you have a right uh, to um, go in and, you know, defend yourself. Exact revenge, if you want to think of it that way. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, so everybody was fine with that. It right. Was, that was the first time, wasn't it, that the... Uh... I'm not sure what, exactly what it's called, but the NATO agreement essentially was activated or so, right? After September 11th. Oh, the NATO. Yes, right. you're right. Sorry. Because NATO becomes sort of the de facto, after the Soviet Union falls apart, NATO, right. NATO, which had been put in place, North Atlantic Treaty Organization, right? Um, supposedly for Europe to protect Europe from the Soviet Union, um, but that becomes kind of a de facto UN police force or military force uh, in in a sense. And so, yeah, you're absolutely right. Because NATO, it was a it was a military treaty as opposed to right. the UN, which is supposed to be diplomatic. Right, exactly. Right. But the UN could, uh, under the UNSC, uh, the UN Security Council, could, as George Bush the first, (laughs) um, uh, brought, you know, it was what, that's what he appealed to for the Gulf War. And so when something like that happens, uh, different countries then contribute troops to a United Nations force. And usually we hear about peacekeeping forces, but you can also hear about, uh, sort of a military kind of force too. Hmm. And that was enacted again in Libya. On when uh, Obama oh, right. was yeah. was president, and you know, created all kinds of issues because one of the ambassadors was killed. Uh, right. In, in that. Right. Yeah. Uh, but that was that was also a, a NATO kind of kind of uh, agreement. Right. So, but after September 11th, um, the NATO member countries, several of them, came together in Afghanistan. Right. 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 And, and they have continued, a number of them have continued to work with us, uh, probably fewer now, um, but, uh, and, and Oxfam and other, other groups to try and rebuild Afghanistan. And we've been there forever now, like 17 mm-hmm. or 18 years. Um, but, uh, but working with um, not only political development, but economic development, education for women, all of those kinds of, of things. And so the UN uh, was sending over not just military people, but other kinds of people as well. And NATO, yes, uh, would have had troops uh, as well. Yes. Um, a, a number of the troops, I think maybe were Australian. You, you see Australia having more uh, of a footprint now hmm. in East Asia, now that China is kind of bolstering itself. Uh, Australia is kind of moving forward a little bit oh, to interesting. provide a, a balance there. Yeah. Right. So Afghanistan is kind of in the East Asian, you know, uh, thing there. Theater. So you do get a number <laughs> of those. Yeah. Yeah. Right. Um, it's when we uh, go, when the U S goes in, in 2003 and then attacks Iraq, um, which really had nothing to do I mean, we all know this now, uh, mm-hmm. had nothing to do with um, 9-11. Uh, but it, it's at that point that, yes, we're still engaged in the world, clearly, um, but 
we began to break with our allies because really only, only, um, let's see, the UK supports us. Spain for a little while had some troops. I was over there at that hmm. in two, uh, when when um, Abu Ghraib happened. That was 2004. Hmm. Uh, I was uh, in Bahrain and uh, everybody from the embassy who could speak, you know, uh, Arabic and Spanish uh, were being sent up there because there were a lot of Spanish troops. I remember that. Uh, hmm. at that time uh, but you 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 see and just Germany, to refresh France you know other yeah. countries starting to pull back and not you know they didn't want to support this so right and just to refresh the memory of anybody who's forgotten Abu Ghraib was the prison oh, where there yeah. were um human rights what, right. what we would call human it, rights um, violations uh extreme torture and things like that and it was and American. also humiliation and and humiliations such. yeah right. yeah but the this is where waterboarding starts to become in evidence and things like that right and this uh, but yeah the um, obviously too. really enraged a lot of yeah. arabs and uh turned turned some yeah. who had been more supportive With us. against us yeah right yeah. Uh, when i was there um my students my bahraini students said we're so uh, we're so upset because we know that our countries do this. Our prisons are horrible. We we know what kind of things they do. We always thought that Americans were different, and mm-hmm. now we find out they're not. Mm-hmm. And that was like a big blow. And uh, there was I was there at a time when Americans weren't supposed to be going out. I was on a Fulbright when you are supposed to be going out. <laughs> and uh, I actually just you know I I actually wore a Palestinian thing. Um, a kind of scarf, uh-huh. um, and uh, and and so I never had any trouble because everybody there is you know pro Palestinian, and so even though I was American, you know they would give me tea and talk to me and all kinds of stuff. So huh. so that wasn't an issue, but uh, but yeah, people were were really angry about that. Yeah, they they felt it was like a soul, you know, a soul wrenching thing, you know, this, wow, we thought America was this and now it's not, you know? So anyway. Right. Well, in, with the United States, you know, for so long, it had really, um, valued its soft power. It's Mm -hmm. sort of cultural and diplomatic and, Philanthrop- uh, oh, I'm philanthropic, yeah. <laughs> philanthropic, yeah, e- economic support, uh, yeah, right. And um, you have to back that up, I would think. You know, if you uh, yeah. if if you want to project that soft power, that comes yeah. with the responsibility to guard yourself and be careful yeah. and to yeah. not overstep boundaries. Right, right, and uh, otherwise you undermine yourself. Absolutely, and right. and your uh, your troops that are there, you know. I mean, we we had this in Vietnam. We had the Milai, uh, the trials, you know, about the Milai thing, and and from then on, you were never supposed to obey military people. Were never supposed to obey um, unjust orders, or or well, I don't think they call it unjust, but um, uh, immoral. I think it's immoral orders, right? Um, and I don't, I, these were essentially immoral orders, you know, but, right, um, right. uh, but anyway, yeah, yeah. So, so that was, that was, that was not good. So that's like, I think, um, the, the other break that comes, 
with our allies and maybe the world too if is way back in 92 um, at the time of the wall comes down and everything else there's a kyoto climate accord agreement mm. and um uh the us is the only one uh, there's 192 countries that have that signed it uh we did not and um i think that put us you know, on, on another side of, uh, of a big question, you know, that our allies, particularly our European allies, our Canadian ally, Mm -hmm. uh, really support. And, um, Obama did in 2015, I think with the Paris Accord, uh, now we've withdrawn from that again, you know, under, under president Trump. So, um, so the, the U S you know, on that particular issue, um, we also, you know, have begun to break away a little bit uh, from our allies and and also from the world in in that in that sense. Yeah, interesting. I didn't realize that Kyoto was so long ago. I didn't realize I it was in 1992. <laughs> I mean, goodness, I that's almost 30 years ago now. I, I guess yeah. that we've been in this yeah. um, situation this with denial. This yeah, climate, this science denial. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's and uh, it's, and also just not being on the same page as the yeah, rest of yeah. the international community, yeah. and yeah. it's a big, um, it's a big wedge. Yeah, it it is a big wedge, and uh, because it does well, the rest of the world has tried to go on, you know, and they're adopting new technologies and things like that. Now, very interestingly, and you know, we we think we can go everything alone. Um, when we had all those um, big hurricanes that came up our coast a couple of years ago and in New York was underwater and New Jersey and Sandy. everybody. Yeah. All of that. Uh, we had to, and, and yeah, the New York like train stations and everything, you know, uh, mm-hmm. we brought over people from the Netherlands to help us, you know, cause oh, they've had yeah. to deal with that forever. Well, we could have been planning that, you know, um, because the climate change people are telling us, you know, that within so many years, we're going to lose so many feet of our, um, you know, of our ocean, of ocean front properties, you know, and yeah. this is increasingly going to be a problem. And so, um, I don't know if they're still in contact with these engineers mm-hmm. but it's something that the netherlands have had to you know deal with for centuries right, <laughs> and uh, yeah they're, they're they're so we are interdependent you know whether uh whether things happen to us the knowledge base that somewhere else you know may wind up helping us uh and uh, we have to keep those you know those uh, avenues open you know right All right, we're going to leave that conversation there for now. I hope you enjoyed it. Next week, I'm going to share with you the rest of my conversation with Dr. Kristen Urban, which will cover the Obama administration through the current moment, and which will include some thoughts on where we might be heading. Thank you for listening to this episode of More Than Politics. I hope you'll subscribe to it, and that if you like it, you'll leave a rating or review so others can find it. I'd appreciate any shares, too. Your help is the best way to let others know about the podcast. If you have ideas for topics you'd like me to cover or guests you'd like to hear from, please email me at julie.walsh.thesewalls at gmail.com. My name is Julie Varner-Walsh. I'm your host. 
You can learn more about me by checking out my blog at theseballsblog.com and you can follow me on Instagram at Julie V. Walsh and Facebook at More Than Politics Podcast. This podcast's theme music is by purple-planet.com.